and welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. Thank you very much for listening. We're broadcast out of CIUT in Toronto or on one of your excellent local community radio stations or on some sort of podcast platform. I am David Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Latour. And as always, we're about to get into some environmental news. And then Stefan is going to interview Fridays for Future about their banking campaign. Uh, yeah, Fridays for Future activists Jane Phillips and Sophie Krause. And Stefan and Lauren are going to interview Seth Klein about his new organization, their Climate Emergency Unit. Yes. But first, Lauren wanted to make a comment about an endangered porpoise. And Stefan was going to say something about something that he found inspiring recently. Beyond, beyond, beyond concepts, beyond, beyond, beyond ideas into infinite potential, infinite possibility, infinite form and creation, infinite form resonating on many frequencies. Yeah, so we're starting at porpoises and then spiraling into existential crisis. So like strapping, get ready. Um, basically, yeah, I'm just, I'm in it this week because, um, I'm stuck in this, in this headspace where like one's trying to determine how one's energy is most effective or meaningfully devoted. And that's really hard in, um, in Ontario where I live, we're still in lockdown. So obviously the other day I was watching a super depressing documentary about vaquitas, which are these tiny, tiny porpoises that are extremely endangered and only live in this one Gulf off the coast of Mexico. And ultimately I, I had to turn the documentary off because it was about a pretty, it was about a really widely publicized catch and conserve program back in 2017. And of course, while I'm watching it, I'm, I'm Googling it. Um, and I learned very quickly that, that this catch and conserve program was like wildly unsuccessful. Um, at the time there were like an estimated like 15 to 30 vaquita, these little porpoises in the Gulf at the time that the documentary was filmed. Um, and when this program was first implemented, uh, they ended up canceling it after a, after a few weeks because only two vaquita were ever caught. And one of those two died in captivity because it was so stressed out anyway, suffice to say it didn't go well. And the population of this one porpoise is down to like literally 10, there's 10 of them left in the whole wide world because things are so unsuccessful trying to conserve them. Anyway, seeing documentaries or like reading stories like this always makes me really question what I'm doing and how I'm showing up in the movement. And of course, this is only exasperated hearing about like what's going on in, in Palestine right now as conflict has reached like a fever pitch with the Israeli population growing more and more violent and expansive. And anyway, what I'm left with is like, how can a person possibly determine where their efforts are best focused in fighting for like a healthy planet and well-being for people? Um, and, and to sort of further complicate things, you have to consider what does it mean to make a difference and what does it mean to only sort of like feel like you're making a difference? So like, is one's best time, is one's time best spent physically like pulling tiny porpoises from gill nets in the Gulf of Mexico and saving that one little life in that one moment? Or is your time better spent advocating for stronger climate policy? Because at the end of the day, that little porpoise won't be able to survive in warming more acidic waters. And then what does it mean to dedicate any time to that when there are like children being murdered in their homes in Palestine at this very moment? And, and obviously there's not a right answer. And like, if you buy into the idea that there's like an ecology of the movement sort of philosophy, all efforts are important in their own ways. And we have to have these sort of various efforts executed. 
in meaningful solidarity and intersectional support and blah, 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 blah. I don't know. I'm just rambling at this point. I, I just feel like I'm having a bit of an existential crisis. Mine thought is a, is a little more, it was an inspirational thing I listened to. So maybe it's a good antidote to this. But first, I do want to acknowledge uh, and thank that last week was our fundraising show here for CIUT. And I want to thank a few folks who did donate uh, to us. Uh, thank you to Matthew, Anita, Leanne, Doug, Tim, Shirley, and Thomas. And if you didn't hear your name on the list and you want to, you can still donate at CIUT.FM. Uh, click donate. And we can give you a shout out next week uh, or in future weeks. Or if you don't want to shout out, you can tell us that too and just donate because that's also helpful for us. Um, but what I want to get to is a, a different podcast that I heard earlier today, or not earlier today, a different podcast that I had come across earlier this week, which was a podcast called No Place Like Home. And there's an interview uh, with Sherry Mitchell, uh, which is the particular episode that I'm here recommending. And she is an indigenous land defender who was at Standing Rock. It's, it's, about, you know, it's not a super long interview, but... It's something that had multiple little moments that made me sort of gave me some life and some inspiration. Uh, I'll share three small little quotes from it, but I encourage you to go listen to the rest of it. Um, some of the advice that that Sherry provides is uh, one that we that we must be focused not on destruction but creation. You know that uh, that we can't get ourselves too bogged down in saying no to things, but that we must also spend a lot of our time trying to bring the new world out and creating the new world, which is a it's a beautiful message. The second connected to that is what we feed grows, and so the things that we actually can bring to these things, we were able to bring. You know, if you can, what you put attention to, if it's always trying to stop stuff, then we might stop things, but it won't bring about a new a new world. Uh, and the third, which is a thought that I'm still sort of working with in my brain, and I recommend, again, listening more deeply to the episode itself to get there, is, uh, quote, is the ri this rising tension within us, which maybe you are feeling a little bit uh, right now, Lauren, uh, is not necessarily about something being wrong, but rather something being righted within us. Uh, and she sort of there was identifying this feeling that she sees in the world, that everyone's starting to feel like this sort of you know, they're feeling tightness inside themselves because we're not sort of getting to where we need to go. There's obviously a rising anxiety, um, and especially in young people who are s experiencing the sort of climate crisis at its, at its most stark. All of that is, is sort of left uh, in, in the face of it. And this question of um, maybe that feeling of tightness is actually uh, the beginnings of, a, of the new world that we actually need. Um, but it, again, I'm not saying as well as she did. Check it out. Uh, it's the No Place Like Home podcast, and it's Sherry Mitchell. We begin to merge into a very pure expression of infinite intelligence in form. We begin to merge into a very pure expression of the very depths of cosmos, the very depths of creation. We're going very deep into the essence of creation itself. Now for some news headlines. A new study published by the American Chemical Society has found large concentrations of forever chemicals in human breast milk. 
A new study published by the Institute of Physics in Environmental Research Letters has found that human CO2 emissions have shrunk the stratosphere by almost half a kilometer since 1980. In a 2.2 degrees Celsius warming scenario, which is, a, which is about what will happen if every country meets their current climate pledges, scientists predict that the stratosphere will shrink by 1.3 kilometers by 2080. A new study out of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the USA is indicating that the Greenland ice sheet could be close to a tipping point, suggesting, quote, substantially enhanced melting in the near future, and revealing, quote, significant early warning signals indicating that the central western Greenland ice sheet is close to a critical transition. A new study published in One Earth has used machine learning to map the way that ExxonMobil has spun climate discourse over the years. The authors found that Exxon has developed the idea that the climate crisis poses a risk, as opposed to something like a catastrophe, and the idea of having to meet so-called energy demand in order to make their product seem inevitably necessary for years to come, to make themselves look like leaders, and to place the blame on the consumers of their product rather than themselves, the producers. The authors also show that Exxon has used rhetoric similar to that of the tobacco industry to push their deadly product. Chevron, meanwhile, is still using its power to leverage a U.S. federal court against human rights lawyer Stephen Donziger, who refused to call any witnesses during his recent trial because the whole thing is a charade cooked up by Chevron to punish the lawyer who won a an $18 billion settlement against them. It has been 10 years since the company lost the lawsuit from 30,000 indigenous people in the Amazon, but Chevron has still not paid what they were ordered to pay by the Ecuadorian Supreme Court. They have managed to shackle Donziger on house arrest since 2019. The judge in Donziger's case appointed a private law firm that already works for Chevron to prosecute him and Chevron's lawyers are being paid by the American government. The majority of Californian counties are now in an official drought emergency, with Governor Gavin Newsom saying that their water system was designed for a world that no longer exists, although people have been adapting by using less water in recent years. The Associated Press reports that a giant sequoia is still smoldering in California from the wildfires that happened last year. The International Energy Agency has released its first-ever report on how to reach net-zero emissions by 2050 and keep global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius, and it is calling for an end to all new fossil fuel projects by the end of that year. Kelly Trout of Price of Oil said, quote, it's huge to have the world's most influential energy modelers bolstering the global call to stop licensing and financing new fossil fuel extraction. Governments, banks, and big oil and gas companies can no longer use the IEA as a shield to claim that their support for fossil fuel expansion is consistent with the Paris Agreement. The IEA's own modeling now shows new oil and gas fields are not compatible with limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. 
This report should herald the end of any excuses for continued fossil fuel expansion. We should never see another IEA report that claims investment in new oil and gas supply is quote-unquote needed. Just last month, Spain approved its first-ever climate change law, which set energy targets and banned fracking, and it has now passed a ban on all new oil and gas exploration. The Union of Ontario Indians is reporting that the Anishinaabek Nation, which includes the Adawa, Salto, Ojibwe, Potawatomi, Oji Cree, and Algonquin peoples, supports shutting down Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline. The governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, has been fighting Enbridge to shut it down over concerns that the old pipeline will spill oil into the Great Lakes, but Canadian governments are unified in wanting to keep it operating. Anishinaabek Nation Grand Council Chief Glenn Hare said, quote, It is upsetting to see that the government of Canada will pick and choose which treaties to uphold based on convenience and profit, rather than in good faith for the health, safety, and well-being of all inhabitants of these lands. The government of Canada is not upholding the treaties made with the First Nations, but will uphold the 1977 treaty for pipelines. The Canadian government is currently being sued by the leader of the Curve Lake First Nation and other indigenous leaders because we have so much fresh water and so much money and still cannot provide clean drinking water to the peoples we have tried to exterminate. We prevent indigenous communities from creating their own water systems and yet refuse to provide working ones ourselves. Finally, APTN reports that some of the First Nations protesters at Ferry Creek, who have been trying to prevent logging of old-growth forest, say they have been attacked by racist loggers. I just want to circle back uh, to that story about the International Energy Agency, because uh, if you are close to climate circles, you know that this news has caused quite the uproar. And I just want to provide a bit of context as to why. And the first reason uh, is because of who the IEA is, from both a perspective basis and a power basis. Uh, from perspective side of things, the IEA grew out of the perception of the need to protect and preserve oil. It was created out of the 1973-1970 74 oil crisis in and in the agency's own words it was created in it was created with a broad mandate on energy security and energy policy cooperation and specifically and i'm quoting here this included setting up collective collective action mechanism to respond effectively to potential disruptions in oil supply the framework was anchored in the iea treaty called the agreement on Inter international energy program so this is not an environmentalist organization, but rather one that was literally created to ensure we didn't run out of oil. That's why it was made. And so for them to advocate that no new fossil fuel projects are needed is huge. And the second is power. As a quote uh, that Dave mentions, it's the most influential energy modeling organization in the world. And what that means is that every oil company in the world now that has expansion projects in its reports to its shareholders now must answer somehow to the fact that the organization that was designed to ensure their product kept flowing is now saying they must wind down. 
Now, this is a direct call and indication to these companies that, are, that, they are, are, that they are spending money on assets that will be stranded. The carbon bubble that climate activists have been warning about for years is at its weakest point it ever has been, and the calls for divestment will only get louder and stronger from here. That's why this shook everyone up. But to you, Lauren. Like you said, having the IEA, which is a relatively conservative, um, but like stringent and relatively in terms of government, a uh, trusted body sort of like lay this out in their modeling that we absolutely 100% cannot continue to invest in new fossil fuel projects if we, if we want to reach zero is, is like a really big deal, obviously, for all the reasons you've said. Um, and it comes out, this report comes out at a really important time because um, we're kind of in the lead up to COP26. And this time we actually think it's going to happen in November, December. And everybody um, is starting to put out their their new NDCs or their nationally disclosed uh, contributions. Um, and the fact that this is coming out is is at a key moment um, because it, it because it, it, it highlights that um, even if all of like the current, if, if pledges weren't to change, if they weren't to be ratcheted up in ambition, um, even if all of those pledges were achieved, um, we would fall way, way, way short of net zero and 1.5. Obviously I haven't read all 240 something plus pages, but what's cool is that um, looking at like even just the press release and the introduction, it's it's a really thorough roadmap. It lays out more than, more than like 400 milestones to sort of, as they say, like guide the global journey to net zero. And it includes, in addition to that, no investment in new fossil fuel supply projects, um, uh, no new financial investment into coal plants. And by 2035, it states that there have to be um, no new sales of internal combustion engine vehicles, which is something we know, but always good to have reiterated and sort of that number hit hitting home globally. And then by 2040, that the global electricity sector um, has to have reached net zero emissions. So all good stuff. And you can definitely hear my dog snoring in the background. I am so sorry. I mean, we just got to add him as a co-host. He's literally sleeping on the job. Now we're going to take a short break and then come back with Fridays for Future and then Seth Klein. Someday 
Thank you very much. And back to the Green Majority. We are here with an exciting interview with Jaden Phillips and Sophie Krauss, who are both organizers with Fridays for Future. Welcome, Jaden and Sophie. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Excited to be here. Before we jump into the conversation, because we're here to talk about the bank switch ad campaign that Fries for Future worked on with Climate Pledge Collective. Let's first jump and hear the ad. It's great to see young people taking a stand against climate change. Good thing it's under control. Actually, it's not. Canadians are among the largest greenhouse gas emitters, so we all need to step up. What can I do? Start with your banking. In the last five years, the big five Canadian banks have pumped over $600 billion into fossil fuels projects, which endanger marginalized communities. That's awful. How can I help? Sign up for Bank Switch. Call your bank and tell the branch manager you're looking for a cleaner bank. Find out more at climatepledgecollective.org slash bankswitch. All right. So... That is one of three different ads that are now airing across radios in the city. I know it's currently airing at least on a couple podcasts, including Diane Sachs's podcast, as well as Classical FM is also airing them. And I'm curious if you can explain uh, why does this campaign focus on banking? Yeah. So basically, banks are one of the main pillars upholding the fossil fuel industry. Since 2016, the Paris Climate Accord, the big five banks, which includes RBC, TD, BMO, CIBC, and Scotiabank, have invested over $700 billion into the fossil fuel industry. So quite literally, these projects, these fossil fuel projects would not exist without the investments of the banks. And not only that, but they have detrimental impacts on the climate and Indigenous communities. They've also been devastating on MAPA communities, so most affected people in areas, primarily in the global south due to the carbon emissions and climate change effects that are derived from these projects. Another reason is because banks are such a common target because almost everyone we know banks with one of the big five banks. It's almost like we're part of this huge scandal, so to say. And banks are using our money in these fossil fuel projects. So by removing our money from these institutions, or at least making a threat to do so, we then have great power over what they can and can't finance. So therefore, we're incentivizing some divestments from these harmful industries. 
Amazing. And so I'm curious if y'all can dive a little deeper into sort of what the message you hope to get across to people. Obviously, banks are an issue is sort of the high level message, but what's the thing you really want to get people to, to think about and do? Yeah, absolutely. So like banks have been pouring billions of dollars, like Sophie just said, into the fossil fuel industry, knowing full well that these industries are directly contributing to the climate crisis. And they have gone to great lengths to greenwash and disguise their fossil fuel investments, including like funding so-called green projects with a tiny fraction of their overall investment value. And these projects with hardly any environmental impact whatsoever, just to make them appear less evil than they actually are. Like the effects of Canadian emissions have global consequences. And we've been the only G7 country that have seen our emissions increase since the Paris Accord. And that is not a good mark. That is not a good sign. So what we're really trying to get across with this is we're especially targeting youth because we think youth have immense power in this movement. We are the future and it's our generation and the ones after that will have to deal with the mess that the fossil fuel industry and the banks by extension are creating today and we'll have to pay for those consequences and we are the big five's future clients we can demand that they end funding to the colonial violence and climate destruction and we need to let them know that we are not okay with this well currently our generation is not the one holding the most money we are not the middle-aged group that are their major investors or stakeholders we are going to be that in the future and therefore demanding them to divest and saying, unless they do that, we will not bank with them. We will not provide them their future clientele. That is a threat we are making to these banks and we demand them do that. And so as young people, we have no ulterior motives of demanding these banks to take action. Whereas people who are slightly older might be understood as being angry at banks because of whatever financial complications they had to go through. But no, we are in the very beginning stages of our financial journeys. We do not yet have experience with these institutions. And therefore, us demanding them to do this is purely out of the fact that they are threatening the existence of our future. Because these are the most powerful institutions in the world with so much money. If they do not divest, our futures will be at stake. Our futures might not exist. So that is a message we really want to get across. Sophie, anything to add on that? Yes, Jaden, that was beautiful. And just to add on, just like Jaden was saying that they are really focused on gaining like future clientele, obviously, so they can keep growing their wealth and investing in these giant destructive industries. People who even don't have a bank account yet are prime agents for change in this movement because they are such prime targets for banks because they are a source of future wealth for them. And just to add on to that as well, we think that because youth are seen as uneducated and weak, which is usually assumed um, to be a setback, it actually provides us with the opportunity to kind of stand out. And as Gen Z is the most climate-oriented generation in history by far, our drive, passion, and demand inspires other generations both before and after us. Another thing we wanted to touch on, just because like the message we want to get across is we need a just transition right now towards a regenerative economy. We're just simply running out of time as global temperatures keep rising. We're currently at 1.2 degrees Celsius of global temperature rise above pre-industrial levels. And once we surpass 1.5, we're going to set up irreversible chain reactions and positive feedback loops of Earth systems that will catalyze the climate crisis quicker than we could 
ever imagine. Awesome. And so if there are any folks who are hearing this and are inspired to to take action and want to get involved, either with just moving their money or with helping organize and getting even more involved, what can they do? Yeah. So if you want to get more involved, something that Fridays for Future is trying to encourage youth to do, especially, is to sign the pledge by Banking on a Better Future. So Banking on a Better Future is actually a new and coming youth-led bank divestment group. We're working on the national level eventually. We're a pretty small group. We just started back at the beginning of the April. But basically, by signing this pledge, you're pledging to either switch your account or open the first bank accounts with alternative institutions if the big five do not make meaningful commitments to climate justice. And once you've signed on to this pledge, you'll be added to the mailing list and they can keep folks updated on the calls to action, the training and other materials that can keep folks involved. So, yeah, we also have done some recent actions, both on April 13th and May 7th. One was with Banking on a Better Future, where we talked, we postered, we stood outside and outside of our bank branches or even the headquarters in downtown Toronto. Same thing for the May 7th. So those are some ideas that youth can take and implement in their own communities if they wish to start being radical with their fight against the fossil fuel industry and bank investments. So we encourage for youth, you can go to bankingonabetterfuture.org. You can also, if you want a more adult-oriented information, you can go to climatepledgecollective.org slash bankswitch. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, both uh, Jaden Phillips and Sophie Krauss, organizers for Fridays for Future. We look forward to having you all back on the show and have a wonderful day. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you. And now we're going to take a short break and then come back with Seth Klein. Stop looking at me, you. Stop looking at me, you. Smoking that black butter shit. You're all bruised, intoxicated, yammering on. What? What does the government know? We're smoking our hands, fumbling, I know. I'm bulldozed on a couch. Look at my teeth. Stalactites. Blood black. Look. Black butter of all your eyes staring at each other and welcome back to the green majority here on ciut 89.5 fm or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country or maybe on the podcast which can be found anywhere podcasts are found we're super excited here for a special interview not only because it's with seth klein who i'll introduce in a second but also because it is a two-person interview i'm here with lauren as well welcome lauren hi there listeners And yes, we are here with Seth Klein, author of A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency, and largely we'll be talking about this new role, which is the Director of Climate Emergency Strategy and Team Lead of the Climate Emergency Unit. Welcome, Seth. Hi, nice to be with you both. Thanks so much for being here. So to jump in, obviously, you know, this is an environmental news hour. Our show is relatively aware of the climate crisis, but there is still some use in sort of setting the scene. So our first question is, why now? You know, what is it about the specific moment that makes you believe it's time for a climate emergency unit? Well, the imperative for the unit was the same, really, as the impulse to write the book, uh, which is what we've been doing isn't working. When you look at Canada's greenhouse gas emissions going back the last 20 years, the best you can say about it is that it's plateaued. You know, in the, in the parlance we've all come to know in this pandemic, we have failed to bend the curve. And 
when you survey all of our climate plans federally and provincial to date, uh, none of them are emergency plans. There's nothing about any of them that looks and sounds and feels like a grand collective undertaking as we urgently need. And so the new unit and the book are very intertwined. When I set out to write the book, I wanted to write a book that would tackle what do we do about this harrowing gap between what the science says we need to do and what our politics seems prepared to entertain. I should say originally, the, the book is all structured around lessons from the Second World War. Originally, that wasn't my plan. Originally, I was only going to have a, a single chapter on lessons from the Second World War. But as I delved into that piece of it, I started to see more and more parallels. And it started to jolt my own thinking about what does it mean to approach this like an emergency. Ended up rewriting the whole outline and restructuring the whole book. And now the new unit is employing a similar framework. So it's pulling the key ideas for what emergency looks like and is seeking to animate those ideas and advance those ideas. I love that. So, so sort of drawing upon that a little bit more, what exactly are you planning for the CEU to do? And we were looking on your website, obviously, and you have this sort of 14 point battle plan that's spelled out in the book and then drawn upon in your website. Does that really form the backbone of the organization's work or what does that kind of look like? Yeah, thanks Lauren. Forward? Um, well, the battle plan out of the book definitely is gives you a flavor of the kind of campaigns that the unit will uh, be seeking to initiate and encourage. The 14-point battle plan is a, a bit long. And so, uh, you know, as I've been out giving talks and interviews with the book since last September and forced to further distill a 400-page book and its longish battle plan into four simple points, the, the unit is, is actually employing a four-point framework, if you will, of how do you know when a government or really any large institution is in emergency mode? And those four points are, it spends what it takes to win. It creates new economic institutions to get the job done. It moves from voluntary and incentive-based policies to mandatory measures as needed. And it tells the truth about the severity of the crisis and, and what's required. Uh, you know, and I offer up those four points as really a litmus test for any government plan, party platform, but really the, the approach that any large institution is taking as really a measure to assess, you know, does this institution really get it? Are they actually in emergency mode? So that's the framework that we're employing with the unit. The, the longer list, the 14-point the battle plan that you mentioned, gives you a flavor of the kinds of campaigns that we are hoping to instigate and initiate. Things like in the war, we had a, a wartime information board to actually really galvanize public opinion and marshal the arts. What about a, a climate emergency information board modeled on that? The CBC had a particular role in the war. What about its role in the climate emergency moment? Uh, what about banning advertising by fossil fuel vehicles and gas stations to, so that our messaging isn't so confusing? When I say marker three means setting clear mandatory date. So what would that look like in the present? Well, what about banning the sale of new fossil fuel vehicles as of 2025? There's another possible campaign. What about ensuring that no new buildings are tying into natural gas or other fossil fuels for space and water heating as of next year? There's another campaign idea. So that gives you a bit of a flavor of what we're, we're hoping to uh, instigate. 
So I'm curious, with that sort of grand vision, what do you envision the unit itself undertaking? How does the unit, this unit sort of, obviously it's civil society, you know, it's not directly a part of government. What is, how is it moving this forward? Right. Good question. And, and I don't want to try to overstate what our little group can do. We're a small little team of, of six people initially, and we're not all full time. The overarching goal is to press for the implementation of wartime scale policies in Canada and to engage all levels of government, particularly the federal and provincial governments, about what emergency can actually mean. Ever since the book came out, I've already started to do some of that political engagement, but really can only get so far as a guy with a book. Sort of gets you in the door, gets you a nice meeting. But the truth of the matter is, I don't think political leaders will do any of these things unless it's backed up by a, a drumbeat of organizations saying, this is what we want. This is what we will reward. This is failure to do this is uh, something we will uh, punish. That's the kind of political muscle it takes. Now, our little unit can't muster that political muscle, but we do hope to convene coalition tables of the willing of those groups that want to collaborate together on some of these campaigns so that our political leaders do feel that push. If and when a leader, a political leader or a large institutional leader indicates a desire to actually really uh, wrestle with and contemplate these kinds of true emergency measures, then the, the work of the unit pivots a bit from outside pushing to actually consulting and collaborating and doing some visioning work with them about, okay, what would emergency mode actually look like for your ministry, your sector, your agency, your crown corporation, your large union, uh, et cetera. I, I think when, once you start working with that four marker framework we're employing, you start to see that it has its own applicability to different sectors and different ministries or, or any large institution, as I say. And we're keen to work with different leaders about what that looks like for them. Awesome. So sort of drawing on that, now that we sort of have a bit of a flesh out idea of what it is the organization is going to be doing, what gaps in the current sort of Canadian climate movement ecosystem, as it were, does the climate emergency unit fill? Well, a, a few. I mean, I don't want to be dismissive of all the good work that people have been doing and appreciate for a moment that pre-pandemic momentum was really building, right? I mean, particularly the student-led stuff that uh, you know, led to the single largest day of protest in Canadian history a few months before the pandemic, led to a federal election that was really where climate was one of the major issues, led to this wave of solidarity actions in support of the Wet'suwet'en that is unlike anything we've seen in our lifetimes, perhaps ever. So momentum, momentum was building. That said, we are trying to up everyone's level of ambition in invoking this framework this wartime framework. As I say, you know, even to offer a, a bit of a self-critique, I've worked in this space for well over a decade. But when I started to delve into that World War II research, as I say, it jolted my own thinking about how we approach and, and treat emergencies for what they are. And one of the things I think we're up against is this insidious legacy of 40 years of neoliberalism that has infected all of our thinking. And not just the leadership of every political party across the political spectrum, but also the leadership of major environmental organizations as well. Like 
why aren't we spending what it takes to win? Why aren't we creating new public institutions to just get the job done? Why are we approaching all of our solutions by trying to incentivize change through rebates and price signals and tax cuts instead of just getting the damn job done ourselves, right? And mandating change. Because that is the legacy of neoliberalism that has taken all of these ideas off the table and instead just leaves us straitjacketed in our approach. And so we're trying to boost everyone's ambition and to reopen our sense of possibility around how we approach these things. We are hoping to convene certain coalition tables around some of these campaign ideas. I think the particular innovation, if you will, around what the Climate Emergency Unit hopes to do is to convene sectoral tables. So our initial sectoral tables will be around arts and culture, farming, faith groups, health, to bring that four marker framework to each of those tables and say, okay, using this as a framework, what does a true emergency mode look like for our sector? And do we wanna collaborate in pressing the relevant leaders within our sector to actually operationalize this emergency vision? So that's some of what we'll do. Uh, we're hoping to train a whole uh, brigade of people who use this framework to try to bring the institutions that they interact with into emergency mode. So that's, that's some of what we'll be doing. Cool. So I would love to take a second to dive into some of the examples or some of the learnings that you came from the book that you'll be using to bring in uh, to this conversation. We actually just interviewed... Uh, Darren Qualman from the National Farmers Union, who just released a report that was sort of this grand vision for net zero agriculture by 2030, right? It's this massive, expansive storytelling project, really, about what this could look like. And to me, that's what's galvanizing. That's what's inspiring, right? These stories of like, this is what we could be doing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you obviously did a ton of research. You just, you've noted the fact that you found that in your research, you were like, oh, here are all these new ways that we can doing that. So like, I'm curious if there's a couple of yeah. those examples that, uh, that are, are top of mind. Well, first of all, let me just say that, you know, the work that Darren and the NFU are doing is fantastic and inspiring. And uh, so they're an interesting example. By the way, I gave a, the keynote at the National Farmers Union AGM last fall. And, you know, one of the, so here's what's neat about landing on this World War II framework. And I didn't even fully appreciate this until I was out kind of touring with the book since it came out, is the remarkable resonance of this 80-year-old story for so many individuals and so many institutions who have a familial connection to that story or an institutional connection to that story. There are people in that story who are important to their sense of purpose and legacy. And where in the public engagement work I'm doing with the book, I get to make a little mischief to say, these people who in a moment of civilizational threat, here's what they did with the extraordinary speed and scale that we, we've forgotten, but we need to remember. Here's what they did then. And now here we are again today. And who do you wanna be? It's one of those moments again. Engaging with the National Farmers Union was fun because of course the whole farming sector did something extraordinary in the Second World War. You know, even as, thousands of people left farms to enlist, farm production increased 
in nutrition across the country increased, even as we were supplying all kinds of food to soldiers and to Britain. And we created new institutions to actually get that job done. And interestingly for them, in Canada, the, the guy who had overseen, who oversaw all of this extraordinary ramp up in military production during World War II, was this guy, C.D. Howe, the, the Minister of Munitions and Supply in the Mackenzie King government. He was an engineer who had made his fortune before going into politics, building grain elevators across Western Canada and working with farmers. So, you know, that's the story to tap into and to appreciate the speed and scale of what we did and then applying it to different sectors. So like take farming, what does it mean to spend what we need to spend so that farms can actually transition the way they need to and become, you know, net carbon sinks rather than sources? What does it mean to create new, brand new institutions that will allow that to happen and will mass produce fossil free equipment and things like that. But also, and this is where I would push it, all these farming organizations, marker three, moving to mandatory. So you wanna have the policy carrots, the incentives, the money, the help for people to transition, but you also need the policy sticks, which is the dates by which certain things must happen. And when you look at so much of the exciting stuff that's happening in agriculture, you know, there are all kinds of farms that are demonstrating how this is to be done. There's some great education out there, but we will not demonstrate and educate our way to victory. We will only mandate our way to victory. The question is, having now had these wonderful demonstration projects, what's the timeline by which the entire sector has to move there? And you can apply the same logic across any sector. You referenced it in your last answer, so I'm, I'm going to ask you to kind of revisit it and draw it out a little bit more. But at the center of your book and across various campaigns for sort of Green New Deal style mobilizations is this hearkening back to eras of, of civil mobilization. Um, in your writing, it's embodied in that sort of then versus now chapter format. And thinking about it further, I'm uh, reminded of like all the Green New Deal style art campaigns that have popped up in the last few years that really reference the sort of 1930s works progress administration campaigning that was done. Having discussed this book publicly for the better part of a year and, and now going into this sort of organizing chapter, what is it about this comparison that is such a helpful tool for communication and mobilization? Why is it, why, or maybe why not, is it effective, do you find? Well, because first of all, in the war, we actually mobilized across society, right? And just to appreciate the scale I'm talking about here, from a population of about 11 million people, over a million enlisted. I mean, that's mind-boggling, is it not? And over a million were directly involved in military production. All of those people had to be recruited and trained up. And six years later, they all had to be reintegrated into a peacetime economy. And we created audacious new programs to allow all of that to happen. So that's the scale that we need to start thinking in today, again, although actually the scale of what we need to do isn't as big as what we did then. So if we did it then, we could certainly do it again. And it took different shape across all kinds of se sectors. You mentioned the arts and culture sector, and that was a big piece of it, right? The arts and culture sector was mobilized, was enlisted to help in that mobilization. And so artists were sent, you know, painters were sent to the front like they were in World War II to bring these images back to us. There was a popular soundtrack to World War II. You know, films were getting pumped out. 
thankfully, in, in a sort of bit of fortuitous timing for Canada, the CBC had been created three years before the war. And so it existed with reach to the whole country as a radio service. The National Film Board had been created months before the war. And the head of the National Film Board, I mentioned earlier the Wartime Information Board, created in 1942, and they made the head of the National Film Board the head of that. So that embedded into it was the, the mobilization of the arts and culture sector to help with that. But back to my four markers. So what would that look like today? So first of all, you've got to spend what it takes. The Canada Council and Telefilm Canada and all of these major public institutions that fund the arts should have huge designated funding streams for the climate emergency so that all of the artists out there who are eager to help mobilize us can actually make a living doing it. So, so that's how you create new institutions and spend what it takes so that the, the artists in our country can help us tell the truth about what we actually have to do. So I, I can't help but hearing your four markers and not layering it over, you know, what we're currently living through in regards to COVID-19, right? You know, the fact that you have these very conservative premiers basically having to come out and be like, say things that their base really doesn't like, right? Like that piece of having to tell the truth, <laughs> you know, you watching the conservative premiers have to say things that really does not sit well with their base, but they see it as a moral requirement, really, you know, right, to convenient the truth in this moment. I'm curious if there's anything after this sort of first experience of, of doing the research, this new layer of more recent, what it looks like to take something mm -hmm. as seriously as at least we have, you know, obviously there's yeah. been failures, but still a fair amount of seriousness. It's imperfect, um, but you're absolutely right. Thank you for noticing. Um, <laughs> I mean, so this is the funny thing, right? I, I, I wrote my whole book before the pandemic and I sent it off for final copy edit three days before the first lockdown. And, you know, at first I was a bit panicked, right? I was like, the whole premise of the book was that we needed this historic example of how quickly we could pivot. And then here we've all spent the last year experiencing that in real time. I ended up writing a, a, an epilogue to the book about COVID and the, and the emergency response. Otherwise, I didn't touch the book. You know, that would have been a real rabbit hole. Um, but I think it's pretty prescient. And the confluence of all of these things have got me thinking about the war and the pandemic and the climate emergency. And what is that alchemy, that combination of events and leadership that shift the zeitgeist into emergency mode? And you're absolutely right, Stefan, that the four markers that I mentioned, Canada practiced them all big time in the war. I would say that our provincial and federal governments hit all four markers with respect to the pandemic. We can quibble about the timing and the degree, but are the, have they spent what they need to spend? I mean, this, the spending increase federally has been extraordinary this year. Creating audacious new programs like the CERB and the wage subsidy that few of us would have imagined them capable of 14 months ago. Moving to mandatory measures is required. Interestingly, kind of like with climate, the public in some ways was ahead of our politics saying, make it mandatory, make it mandatory, right? And telling the truth in briefings with, with health professionals every day. So yes, and frustratingly with respect to the climate emergency, our federal government and every provincial government of every political stripe doesn't just miss some of the four markers. They have yet to hit a single of the four markers. But here's the thing, and I don't know if this offers you and your listeners some solace. 
every emergency begins with a period of denial. Let me repeat that. Every emergency begins with a period of denial. At the outset of the Second World War, we were not a public that wanted to do this. We did not have a leadership that was all keen to do this. And if you had said to Canadians in 1938, this gang in Mackenzie King's cabinet, do they have what it takes to completely transform Canadian society and the economy as they were about to do? I'm certain most Canadians would have said, no, not this gang. And they had no reason to believe otherwise. And if you had asked me 14 months ago, are there people at Finance Canada and the Bank of Canada capable of quickly pivoting and within weeks creating the kinds of programs we've seen? I would have said to you, no, there's no one home who thinks that way. And I would have been wrong. So we never know when those moments come when our leaders actually get there. And all of us can remember 14 months ago, starting to hear the initial reports of this new virus and we were all in denial about what it was going to mean for our lives. And then certain events happened, like, I don't know, I remember the cancellation of the NBA season. I don't even watch basketball, but I remember thinking like, whoa, this is major. I also know that it took seeing my prime minister in front of his house every morning. That communicated to me there was emergency. So this is what the pandemic gives us. We now have another reminder of what emergencies are supposed to look and sound and feel like. And now we need it for the climate emergency. Well, I think we are coming up on our time with you. And I think that's a really good note to start to wrap things up on. So how can listeners and anybody interested get involved or, or support the CEU? Thank you. Thank you for that opening. Well, first of all, go check out the website, which is just climateemergencyunit.ca. And you can see more about what we're up to. You can sign up for our newsletter. So once a month, we'll be putting out updates about campaigns. In some ways, all we're hoping to do is amplify climate emergency campaigns of others. Here's the other thing about the unit. We are by design a five-year time-limited project. We're not investing time and money trying to build our own brand or our lists or all the trappings that come with being a long-term institution. We are here for a good time, not a long time. So to the extent that we can amplify the good work of others, we will be doing that to the, where we see a gap and, and an emergency campaign that's needed. We will try to initiate it, uh, either seed it somewhere else or, or lead it ourselves. So sign up to the newsletter, sign up to the different social media platform accounts so that you can stay abreast of what we're up to. Now I'm realizing I wish I'd asked that first because knowing that's your your organizational model and that you're only around for five years and it's the focus isn't list building. It's like, wow, that, uh, you know, that it's blows funny. open the possibilities. We almost stumbled in, into that model, but I think we're trying to communicate that the emergency is now. And it's not 10 years from now, it's now. So, but we just want to focus on campaigning in the now. I feel like we could have a whole nother interview about how that changes one's approach to activism. But, but so instead, I'll leave it with one question, which is if you have one message to give to our listeners, what would that message be? There's two things I like to say at the end of my talks often with this. I mean, one is all of your listeners who listen to your show, who have the courage to follow the science and so on, we all wrestle with despair, right? We don't know if we're going to do this in time. Here's the little historic reminder I'd like to offer out of my World War II study. Those million plus people who enlisted that I was talking about before, you know what they didn't know? They didn't know if they would win. We know how the story ended, but they did not. And they did what they had to do anyway 
And in the process, they surprise themselves. And that's the spirit. We need to approach the sin in the present. The other thing is that we were talking before about, uh, you know, these pandemic parallels. There are people who've responded to my thesis by saying, you know, look how, look at COVID fatigue and how fatigued people have become being in emergency mode in less than a year. And here you are asking people to go into emergency mode for multiple years. But here's the difference. The things we've been asked to do in this pandemic, called upon to do, are anathema to all of our social instincts to stay home, to isolate, and that is hard. The good news is what we're now called upon to do in the face of the climate emergency is precisely the opposite. To get out there and do something grand together. And we can do that for a few years. What a wonderful note to end things on. Thank you so much for your time today, Seth. It was really a fantastic talk. Thank you so Thanks, much. Bob. Right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.